You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell, editor of the NC Insider. Joining us this week on the panel, we've got Danielle Battaglia from the Insider and Will Doran and Julian Shinbero from the News and Observer. Um, and this is an exciting week for political nerds because uh, after seeing sort of the, the campaign season go dormant a little bit uh, during all the coronavirus stuff and the legislative session, uh, we now have a new round of campaign finance reports to play with and get a sense for sort of the health of the different campaigns and who's up, who's down, where's the money coming from, all that good stuff. Uh, the reports were due uh, at the end of last week, beginning of this past week, um, and so most of them are in now, so we can sort of compare and contrast the different campaigns. Uh, and Will and I and some others on our team have been diligently pouring over these and making spreadsheets and trying to follow the money. So, uh, Will, what's the, the big takeaway, uh, particularly for the big races, on uh, what we're seeing money-wise? Well, for the big statewide races, you're just seeing Democrats blowing Republicans out of the water right now. Um, you know, basically what we've seen, it's the, the latest numbers were what they call the Q2 numbers for the second quarter of the year. It's basically what you have at the end of June. So heading into the second half of 2020, how much money you've raised, what you've got on hand, all of that. And I mean, you know, it, it, it's not looking great for some of the Republicans at the top of the ballot. You're seeing Tom Tillis pretty far behind Cal Cunningham for the U.S. Senate race. You're seeing Dan Forrest pretty far behind Roy Cooper for the attorney general race. Some of the other big statewide races a little down the ballot, like for attorney general, state Supreme Court seats, a lot of the, the Council of State races. Well, the Council of State's a little bit more of a mixed bag uh, for some of those smaller races, like, you know, um, the lieutenant governor or the secretary of state. You know, some of those you see Republicans ahead. Um, but for really the, the premier statewide races, um, you know, you're seeing the Democrats uh, last quarter raised three, four, five times as much money as their Republican challengers did. I think it shows Democratic voters are pretty uh, <laughs> active to go out there and vote. I, you know, I think, you know, it, it, it's hard to ignore the Trump factor in all of this. You know, people are just um, really strongly dislike Trump on the Democratic side and really want to make sure uh, that Democrats win their races, not just at the presidential level, but kind of down the ballot. And, um, you know, I mean, coronavirus made fundraising a little more complicated for people. Um, and that's probably what you, you know, see for some people, you know, why their numbers might be, might not be as big as they had intended just because some of their usual donors are, you know, maybe business owners who were hit by coronavirus. But, um, you know, it's just, it, it's pretty stunning, honestly, how, how much the Democrats have been outraising the Republicans by at those top of the ballot races. Yeah, and they do seem to be getting money in that, um, you know, times are tight for a lot of people, but uh, the, the big money donors don't seem to mind. And some of them are pretty notable names. The key thing I always find to watch is because the maximum is like, little over $5,000 for an individual contribution to an actual candidate's campaign. Um, a lot of the, the big money folks are going through sort of outside groups, most notably, and I think most actively, this particular go-round, the um, fund that supports Democratic candidates for Council of State, but primarily Governor Roy Cooper's election bid. Um, that was a sort of quirky thing in campaign finance law that was set up a few years ago when the NC Republican Party had some leadership issues. So the legislature went in and created these new unlimited fundraising groups that were tied to 
legislative leadership, but also council of state leadership in each party. Um, but the Republicans since then, I think, got their, you know, actual party house in order um, and now still do a lot of their fundraising through the NCGOP, whereas the Democrats have used this um, group tied to the Council of State to bring in some pretty significant funding um, for uh, mostly, I think, Governor Cooper's campaign, but um, allowing them to raise millions through that in addition to the millions that he's raising through his regular campaign, which is, you know, where they can then brag, hey, look at all this grassroots support and small dollar donors, uh, but they brag a little bit less about the um, big money coming from elsewhere. And I went through it, I, the ones that stuck out to me uh, was the biggest donor of all was $140,000 from Eric Schmidt, who might sound familiar because he used to be the CEO of Google, lives out in California, and apparently is very interested in Roy Cooper getting a second term, even though he's on the opposite side of the country. Um, and then some other folks. Um, I was intrigued to see the name Edward Snowden on the list. Uh, turns out um, it's not the, uh, the Edward Snowden that we're thinking of. It's actually a theatrical producer uh, from Broadway, New York City, who goes by the name Ted Snowden. Um, so a little bit less exciting than when I initially saw that name uh, pop up on the sheet. Um, but certainly uh, it's, it's a way to do th things like that. Um, you've also got um, different uh, Democratic uh, national fundraising groups put, pouring in millions of dollars through this particular vehicle, which is called like NC Democratic Leadership Fund. Um, and that's going to be a, a big source of uh, funding and sort of ad power that uh, Governor Cooper is going to be able to draw on while you're seeing very little of that from Dan Forrest's campaign. I mean, he certainly, he got outraised on his main campaign, but then the uh, main group that he uses for uh, larger contributions, which is an independent expenditure group uh, called Truth and Prosperity that's supporting Forrest, only raised 192000 has about $1.7 on hand um, from some of the usual suspects there. Uh, the developer in Raleigh, John Kane, who's behind North Hills and some other developments, um, has done a lot of that. Um, contributions there from Ronald Cameron, who's the CEO of Mount Air Foods, the big chicken producer. Uh, looks like he lives out in Arkansas, but has donated to a lot of uh, Republican campaigns. Um, any other notable donors y'all are seeing um, pop up in, in the report so far? I think Ronald Cameron, you know, you mentioned his name, uh, you know, obviously he has chicken plants in Siler City and down outside of Fayetteville and I think maybe in a couple other places around the state. So I think he has possibly become the biggest GOP donor to state candidates, although, uh, like you mentioned, John Kane has also given a lot of money. Um, on the Democratic side, the, the biggest individual donor, um, at least that we've seen in these records so far, and obviously, you know, there's, there's ways for for donors to hide their contributions through, you know, so-called dark money groups like super PACs and things like that. But as far as at least the, the donations that we can see that are transparent, um, on the Democratic side, it's Virginia Saul, uh, who's the wife of John Saul, who's a co-founder of the tech firm SAS. Um, and she is a, a pretty active philanthropist for environmental causes and um, other, you know, things that are kind of associated with the more liberal side of the political spectrum. Um, and she gave um, around a half a million dollars last quarter. Um, so she, she was pretty active um, uh, for, a lot of, for a lot of Democratic politicians. And then I'm looking at the uh, Council of State races, which are sort of fun to watch because I feel like there's pretty big discrepancies in some of the fundraising there. Uh, I will note that uh, that seems to be where some of the, a few of the brighter spots for Republicans are. For insurance commissioner, Mike Causey is raised just a little bit less in the second quarter than Wayne Goodwin, his predecessor in the role who has challenged him to a rematch uh, in the commissioner of insurance race. Uh, the other one that seems to be close is um, for Lieutenant Governor 
where I'm seeing Mark Robinson, the Republican candidate, raised $290,000. Yvonne Hawley, the Democratic candidate, has raised $270,000. So that seems to be closely matched in fundraising, uh, where you're seeing some big discrepancies uh, seem to be in uh, a couple of the other Council of State races. Uh, for labor commissioner, Jessica Holmes raised way more than state rep uh, Josh Dobson, the Republican candidate, uh, 96000 to 14000 but still not a whole lot of money going into that one uh, to determine the fate of, you know, who gets their face on elevators, but also regulates a lot of the uh, labor issues in the state. Um, a lot of money going into the state treasurer's race this year. Um, the Democratic candidate, Ronnie Chatterjee, had uh, raised 360000 during the period to 131000 for incumbent Republican Dale Falwell. So I think you're going to see a lot of ads about that. I've, I've already even seen some Dale Falwell billboards as I was driving I-40 uh, last week. So, you know, it's not a race a lot of people pay attention to, but the people who have probably a financial stake in either the state retirement system or health plan or anything along those lines um, pays a lot more attention to that than through a lot of the random average people. Um, tend to do um, as far as judicial races. Uh, that also seems to be a heavy Democratic advantage with a lot of money uh, going in behind uh, Sherry Beasley on the uh, Democratic side for Chief Justice over uh, fellow Justice and Republican Paula Newby. Um, so a lot of, I think a lot of interest in who gets to control the state Supreme Court and Democrats wanting to make sure that they continue to have the majority of the, of the seats on the high court to deal with a lot of these political matters that seem to keep constantly uh, kicking up to there. Uh, Will, you've been looking at legislative stuff too. Uh, any major trends that stick out on um, state legislative races so far? Yeah, this is going to be a very, very expensive year for the legislature. Um, and there's really two reasons for that. One is President Trump's numbers. The Democrats are looking at these numbers and saying, hey, you know, we might have a sh- better shot than we thought of taking back the majority uh, this year, you know, especially because they they really do need to pick up, you know, not just the suburban seats, but they need to flip some of the kind of uh, what are called like ex-urban or a little bit more rural, not, you know, 100% rural places, but, you know, places like Greenville or, you know, Alamance County um, that, you know, that's where Democrats are going to need to win in order to, to actually get a majority. And they're thinking that, you know, well, you know, if, if Trump kind of stumbles this year, um, they, maybe they've got a shot. And then the other flip side of that is whichever party has control of the legislature um, after these elections is going to be in charge of redistricting for the next decade. And obviously, you know, we have seen, you know, just constant litigation over re- redistricting and gerrymandering really since, I mean, the 1980s, um, <laughs> but especially the, the last few years. Um, and there's going to be a ton of money pouring into legislative races, especially from big national groups on both sides of the aisle who are really fighting for, uh, you know, for who gets to, to draw the maps because, you know, redistricting not only affects state legislative races, but also our U.S. House of Representative seats. Um, and, you know, you, we saw a few years ago how, you know, Republicans, uh, you know, said that they purposefully gave themselves a 10 to 3 advantage in the House of Representatives because they couldn't figure out a a legal way to give themselves an 11 to 2 advantage. Um, That 10 to 3 map has since been struck down and was replaced by an 8-5 Republican map, uh, or at least what looks like it'll probably be an 8-5 Republican map. We haven't actually had the election yet, Uh, so I shouldn't get too far ahead of myself. Um, (laughs) But uh, by by all accounts, it'll probably end up um, 
8-5, maybe 7-6, but, you know, it looks like there's probably no way for Democrats to, to win the majority of the U.S. House seats um, in North Carolina under the current map. But if they get redistricting control back, uh, you know, maybe they could draw themselves, you know, a 7-6 Democrat map or even an 8-5 Democrat map. It's not just state politics, it's national politics, too, at stake with who controls the state legislature. And, you know, the, the third biggest fundraiser last quarter after you had you had that uh, Democratic Leadership Council group that you mentioned, Colin, which is basically the, the group where Roy Cooper can get around the limits on individual donors and get the big donations. That was the biggest fundraiser last quarter. And then the Cooper campaign was the second biggest fundraiser. And then number three was this group that I had never heard of before called Citizens for a Better North Carolina. Basically what that is, is it's a uh, Republican group aimed at keeping control of the state legislature. So that group, which is doing all, you know, outside independent spending, it's not, you know, able to directly coordinate with any individual candidates. It's, you know, just all outside money. Um, you know, that raised more money than Dan Forrest's campaign. You know, that raised more money than the North Carolina Republican Party did. That, you know, anybody except for Cooper and Cooper's, you know, kind of affiliated campaign. They've been spending money on around a half dozen different um, legislative seats so far, mostly targeting Republicans who are in competitive races um, where Democrats might have a shot at flipping um, and who also haven't done a great job at fundraising so far. So they're, they're basically, if you, if you look at the numbers, kind of you know, obviously they can't coordinate directly with these candidates, but they can look at the numbers just like we can and see like, oh, okay, like here's some candidates who are kind of, you know, lagging behind on fundraising and maybe their Democratic challenger has a ton of money or, you know, we're just expecting this to be a competitive race. So that's kind of where this, this outside group is coming in. Um, and they got, you know, two and a half million dollars last quarter and we'd probably expect to see them get a lot more money. And it's interesting, they seem to be funneling most of their money through a consulting firm run by a former uh, Senate caucus director, uh, Ray Martin, and then uh, Jim Blaine, who's a former chief of staff to Senate leader Phil Berger, and also someone who's credited with having a, a big part in Republicans taking the majority way back in 2010 when he was uh, working for the party. Um, and it sounds like they're pretty much doing all the direct mail and, and various other things for this group on behalf of the candidates that they've identified as, you know, key people to save or to, to help win. Yep, yep. The election is starting very early this year. Um, they're starting to send out some direct mail for their candidates and their races. Um, Democratic dark money groups are doing the same thing, sending out, you know, direct mail in, in their races. So, you know, people should expect to start seeing uh, mailers pop up in their mailboxes uh, soon. And, uh, you know, especially if they live in these competitive races and actually... Um, our uh, colleague Lucille Sherman and I are currently doing a deep dive into the, the numbers to basically put up or put together a map of where these competitive races are, where the money is really flowing. Um, the, the Wake County suburbs and a couple of the Charlotte, Charlotte Mecklenburg County suburbs are looking like they're really going to be battlegrounds this year um, with Republicans trying to take back some of the seats uh, that Democrats flipped in 2018. Um, and then you also see places like Fayetteville, Wilmington, like I mentioned earlier, Greenville and Alamance County. Um, those really look like the areas around the state that are going to be targeted the most heavily. Um, and, you know, kind of some of the outlying areas, too, especially in the Triangle. You might, you might see Democrats making a push in Johnston County and Harnett County 
as unlikely as that seems to people who have been around for a while and know the political geography of the state. But, you know, they think they've got a chance um, and, you know, it, it's going to be just a multi, multi-million dollar effort to, from both parties to, to either retain or take control of the state legislature. It's just hard, you know, we've got the presidential race, the governor's race, the Senate race, all the congressional races that are all going to be spending, you know, I mean, shoot, you'll probably see 30, 40, $50 million in each of the governor and the Senate races. So to be able to just, you know, kind of make yourself heard above the noise of all of those TV ads at the legislative level, you've got to spend a lot of money. Uh, any other thoughts on campaign finance so far, uh, Danielle and Julian, if you've noticed anything? I've been working on every other story this week. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, um, I guess sort of a campaign adjacent story that uh, you've seen is the Department of Insurance race becoming uh, almost a race about masks and uh, whether there's been enough COVID protections for the employees that work in that building. Uh, how did that come about? Well, so, you know, I said back in, I want to say March, that this was going to become political, whether to wear a mask or not. And we've seen that. And it seems like the Republicans have taken a side to not wear a mask where Democrats are taking a side to wear a mask. And I will caveat that with that's not across the board with every Republican or Democrat. But uh, this week, um, uh, making sure I've got the players right, Mike Causey's office um, came out and said they have their second case of coronavirus. Um, he couldn't remember if it was last week or the week prior, but this is now the second employee. The first employee was back in June and they haven't shut down their office. He told me since March, they did shut it down for six weeks from the public, but otherwise they've done temperature checks for employees. They've done temperature checks for visitors, but they've kept their office rolling this entire time. So when this latest one came out, they had some employees complain saying, we don't, we don't want to go to work anymore um, and work in the office. We don't feel comfortable. So they've stopped doing temperature checks of employees, but also allowed them to stay home if they feel that way. And so I think that started Monday. It may have been the Monday before. Everything's rolling together in my head. But um, in, in response to that, Wayne Goodwin, who is the, um, not the incumbent, the candidate for it, he was former incumbent, um, he came out and said that he feels like Mayakazi is not only risking the health of his employees, but the health of people in the state as he goes around. He visited a bunch of fire departments this week. I know he was up in Rockingham County, and I saw him somewhere else in the state visiting firefighters. And, um, and he wasn't wearing masks there, from what I've been told. I've seen photos without him in masks. I don't know if that was a constant or just what we're seeing. Um, and then he's been at campaign events where he's been photographed without wearing a mask. And so uh, Wayne Goodwin called on him to join the, I think it's the wear a mask campaign. I think it is that simple of a phrase, but um, to basically wear a mask to keep citizens safe as he's visiting them on the campaign trail, but also keep his own staff safe from getting coronavirus. That'll be an interesting one to watch and particularly whether any other state agencies as they potentially go back to work or ask their employees to stop working from home, um, if that becomes sort of a, a safety issue, not to mention just the general sort of mask issue. Certainly we're seeing a lot of that in the, uh, the governor's race so far. Um, I think that about covers that. We're going to take a break right now and then uh, we'll be back with Headline of the Week.
All right. Uh, back with Headliner of the Week. And uh, let's look at last week's results. The winner was uh, Surprise Veto of Senate Bill 168, the uh, death uh, record confidentiality measure. Uh, I think that was Lucille's pick. Um, and since she's uh, not on the panel this week, uh, she gets to sit out, but she wasn't here to start with. So that's easy enough for her to sit out of. Uh, my pick, Bare Teeth, was number two, followed by Jim opening loopholes and campaign finance records uh, at the end. Um, so let's jump into this week's uh, headliners. Uh, Will, you want to go first? Sure. Um, my headliner is going to be school reopening. That has just been what has dominated the news. Um, Governor Cooper rolled out his plans for uh, you know, public schools coming back in the fall, basically aiming to have a mix of online and in-person class, but also giving districts the option to do all online if they want to. And that's really kind of the, the, the really interesting part of this is we're seeing some of the biggest districts in the state say they want to take that all online option and go to totally online classes. Um, the General Assembly actually passed a law earlier this year saying that the first week of school had to be in person. Um, so that could throw a wrench into those plans. And, you know, we only have less than a month left until school's supposed to start. And, you know, we'll see um, what happens there. You know, the, the governor said that um, he believes schools can reopen completely online, do that first week online if they want. Um, but I spoke with Phil Berger's office uh, yesterday, actually. Uh, Thursday and they said they disagree with that and you know want <laughs> expect for the law that they passed to be followed so that could end up uh, heating up in, in the coming weeks especially if we see even more of the big districts saying that they want to open up online only. All right uh, Julian what you got? Yeah I'm gonna go with the uh, Thomas Ruffin statue coming down this week so that is uh, Thomas Ruffin was a 19th century Supreme Court Chief Justice for the state and uh, he's been kind of a, a famous judge in history, but also now much more controversial one. He was a slave owner. He passed, um, or he affirmed, I guess, the kind of absolute authority of a slave owner over a slave way back in the 19th century when he was presiding over the Supreme Court. Um, and so he is someone who people have, especially recently with the push to kind of remove uh, memorabilia and statues of the Confederate era, um, he's been someone also that's been kind of targeted by that wave of, of you know, removing things that are kind of erected in his memory. Um, so that statue was removed from the Court of Appeals on Monday, I believe. And uh, we saw in January of this year also his portrait taken down from the Orange County Courthouse. Um, so this is something that's seen more attention. And I believe there are more kind of portraits of him around the state in various courthouses. And so we might see more attention to those as well. All right, Daniel. Well, Will took mine, <laughs> but I'm going to dig a little deeper into his um, and go with virtual academies. Um, little known fact about me to most people, I think, is I'm a product of online high school for the last three years of my high school. And um, I'm interested to see, I know it's been controversial in North Carolina, how the um, virtual school system was going. So I'm interested in seeing what schools are going to do either staying on campus or going digitally, but I would love to see that digital platform explored more and see how we can bring that up to 2020 and where virtual schools should be as opposed to where they are right now. All right, and I'll jump in last. Um, I'm going with what sounds like a boring topic this week, which is prison software. Uh, not something we normally think of, but I wrote a story this week 
about some of the 2 a.m. legislation that was passed when we were half asleep trying to watch the last little bit of the legislative session. Um, and this was a provision tacked onto a sort of benign looking purchase and contracting bill uh, that basically puts a million or two million into new prison software to manage inmate movements and staffing and various other things. Uh, State Senator Bob Steinberg wanted it. He says it's a big safety issue that they've got this antiquated system. Uh, but the funky part of this is that the Department of Public Safety doesn't want this program. Uh, they think the deadlines are unrealistic and they're worried that the way this is written, it spells out uh, one specific vendor who's going to get this contract. Um, and it's not going to be sort of the normal uh, competitive system that the state uses. Um, and it's as best I can tell, a company called Tyler Technologies that gave a presentation to Senator Steinberg's committee in which they said, hey, the, we recommend the state uh, put in some new software. And oh, by the way, we have the software. Um, so for, for that, uh, attracting some scrutiny um, to a sort of obscure area of state purchasing, uh, prison software is my pick. Um, and I guess that takes care of uh, this week's Domecast. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Don Vaughn will probably be back in the hosting chair this week, so you don't have to deal with uh, me trying to uh, run the show. Uh, and have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.